Daniel chapter 3, hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace." because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is, is like a son of the gods. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Ebenezer Scrooge had an urgent question. He was resistant up to this point, but then he began to get a little bit concerned. And he had an urgent question for the third spirit that visited him that evening. And the third spirit, as you recall, was the spirit of Christmas, what? Future. And he had a question before he saw the rest of the visions, and particularly before he saw the name that was written on that tomb. The question was this, are the, the visions that I have seen in my dreams, the dreams that you all have showed me tonight, are those possibly changeable, or are they set in stone? Is there anything that can prevent the, the fulfillment of these visions that you've shown me? Is it possible? And the Spirit didn't answer him. He just pointed. But as it turns out, as you know, the dreams were changeable. That with a changed life, Ebenezer Scrooge was able to help avoid some of the things that were shown to him in those visions that he saw during the night. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had never read Charles Dickens's uh, a Christmas Carol. But apparently he had the same sort of question. Because as you recall, last week he saw a vision in a dream. And it was about a statue. And the statue had a gold head and a silver chest. And it had a bronze torso. And then it had iron legs and feet of iron mixed with clay. And Daniel was given the interpretation. And it was explained to him that that Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. But then there were three more kingdoms coming after him. And he honored Daniel, and he thought this was amazing that he could tell that, but that dream stuck with him, and he, he seems to wonder, I wonder if there's anything that I can do to keep that gold head going on for a while longer, anything I can do to hold off the, the silver and the bronze and the iron and the iron mixed with Clay. And in addition to that, the iron mixed with clay, the problem with that kind of a kingdom is, what, is that it was divided. So he may have been thinking, is there something I can do to keep my kingdom from being a divided kingdom that's unified around a certain idea or allegiance? And likely to counteract this dream, 
he set up an image of his own. He had seen an image in his dream, and so he set up his own image. And it was of gold, and it was near the city of Babylon. It was in the county, if you were, the province of Babylon. He could have been building it and then had an unveiling as the people came out from the city and came from surrounding cities. But unlike in the dream, the image was all gold. It wasn't mixed. It was all gold, perhaps in this, uh, an attempt to extend his kingdom. But it was not only all gold, it was all gold. That is, it was of one substance. It wasn't mixed. It was trying perhaps to, to signify a unified Babylonian empire. It may have included a human or divine image at some point. It calls it a statue. It calls it an image, but it doesn't describe it. Its proportions are odd. It's more the proportions of an obelisk. Uh, it's it's, the, um, it's ac- almost exactly the same proportions as the Washington Monument, which if it were a human or divine figure, it would be very, very distorted. Some suggest that maybe it had a tall base and then a, an image on top of that. But however that might have been, it reminds us of another tower that was built nearby a long, long time before this tower, this image was built. It was the Tower of Babel, and that is not an accident of Babylon and Babel. This is the same region, and in that Tower of Babel, the effort was to unify all the peoples and ascend up to God to have something that not even God could oppose. And so it looks like here, Nebuchadnezzar is doing Tower of Babel Part 2. The first Tower of Babel didn't succeed. But now he was trying to, to build it. And it's, it may be simply a characteristic of, of Hebrew literature. You've noticed a lot of repetition. The, the lists of the officials are repeated. The lists of the instruments are repeated. But there's another expression that's repeated eight times when it refers to the image. The image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Which image? Oh, it's the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Which image? It's the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up which seems to be emphasizing that this image was the work of whom? Nebuchadnezzar. So this image was no god. This image had no power. It was the work of man. And not only the work of man, it was the work of a man, a single man, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar invited all the provincial officials to the dedication, many of whom would have been from conquered nations. So this was an international gathering all the conquered nations, he had this policy of using people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, uh, using people from the nations in his court and in his administration. So this would have been an international gathering, and it said explicitly that it was. And they were, were invited to the dedication, and the king gave an order. And the order was, when the orchestra plays, then you need to bow down to this image. And this is clearly an act of worship here. This is to worship the image. So what is he trying to do? He's trying to unite his kingdom that is very large and very diverse around a single faith, a single religion, a religion that he has developed focused on the gods that he worshipped. Now, this this was probably not too difficult for many of the conquered peoples because many of the conquered peoples were already accustomed to three ideas. One – worshiping many gods. So they wouldn't have any trouble worshiping the Babylonian god in the form of this image. Two, they were accustomed to to using images. Uh, So they were accustomed to worshiping many gods, 
and worshiping gods through images. And the third thing is, they were accustomed to the idea is that if you get conquered, it's probably because the god of the other country is bigger and badder than yours. And so they would not have an idea of adding this god of Babylon, uh, because after all, this god of Babylon had given Babylon the victory over their people, so he was probably a stronger god anyway, so let's include him in our gods. Not a problem for most of the people. And uh, sure enough, Sure enough, uh, they, they obeyed. But just uh, to make sure, there was a severe penalty that was added. And the severe penalty was to take advantage of the smelting furnace that would have already been there. If you're going to make a, a gold image, you're going to need a smelting furnace for bricks, perhaps for the foundation, and certainly for the, the metal image. And so already at hand, there would have been a, a very hot smelting furnace. So just to make sure that there weren't any problems, uh, there was a, uh, a punishment for anyone who did not bow down and worship that image, and that was to be tossed immediately into the fiery furnace. And so on cue, all the nations worship the image in verse 7. So here we go. Here's the climax. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is remarkable. The Tower of Babel did not work. God had frustrated it. But Nebuchadnezzar, with his own hands, had been able single-handedly to succeed where the Tower of Babel failed. He, he was able to have an image, a tower, around which the nations all unified and all gathered. And there they were, all of them, bowing down. And Nebuchadnezzar had pulled it off with this image that he had set up. Now, we might think of the stories in Daniel as kind of individual stories, but they're actually tied together beautifully. And let's see how what's about to happen is prepared for here. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 17, it says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And then chapter 2 comes. So this verse sets us up for chapter 2. Lo and behold, there's a man there uh, to whom God has given ability to interpret visions and dreams. In chapter 2, what does Nebuchadnezzar have? A dream. And handily, there's somebody there who's able to interpret it. And then we look at the end of chapter 2 that we saw last week in verse 49. And we read this. Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This is the capital county here. This is the District of Columbia. This is the federal district here. And he named these young Jews over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And Daniel remained at the king's court. So that sets up chapter 3. Because these young men couldn't fly under the radar. These men were part of the administration. And they had probably provoked some envy. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. So uh, the, the, the other officials who were under, apparently, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had noticed something that Nebuchadnezzar had not noticed. He couldn't have noticed everybody and what they were doing, but, but there were some men, and they didn't bow down. Apparently, they were there, 
but they didn't bow down. They didn't worship the image. And these Chaldeans, take a look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans. So Chaldean could simply mean racial Babylonians. And that would be enough for them to be ticked off at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were Babylonians, and here were these Jews that were apparently over them in the administration. So that's a sufficient need for a sufficient cause for envy. But Chaldeans could also mean a professional group of the, the magicians, the, the soothsayers, the diviners. And here they were under these Jews who had these, these special abilities. They were the ones who asked all the, uh, aced all the tests. They were the ones who, who understood things better than they did, uh, even the magi- magicians. And so they came and denounced them. And um, it's interesting to note that King Nebuchadnezzar was, was furious was furious, and he, in verse 13, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. But then he does something interesting. He gives them another chance. And so this indicates that he was favorably disposed to these young men. They were were able young men. He had invested a lot in their their preparation. And he shows them some grace. Because do you remember what the rule was? If you don't bow down, what's the adverb? Then what? Immediately. Immediately. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. I mean, immediately into the fiery furnace. But he gives them another chance. He's angry, but he says, if you do it now, I'll I'll cue up the orchestra again, and I'll give you another chance when you hear the music, and then you can bow down. Maybe you didn't get it right, but now you understand. uh, You get another chance. Now, the, the thing he did here, though, is he made this question a direct challenge to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you look at verse 15, after he threatens them with immediately again, he says, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He had just pulled off something amazing here. And he was pretty puffed up with his power. He had just pulled off the Tower of Babel. And he said, and what God can deliver you out of my hands? And then, apparently calm, collected, composed, these men, by the way, they're no longer called youths. They're called men. We don't know how long this was after chapter 2. But these men responded and said, we really don't need to give a defense at all. We really have nothing to say about this. Um, We will let you know, though, that we are considering two options. We, We understand the rules here, and we're considering two options. One is, our God, who is able to save us, will save us from the fiery furnace. Two, our God, who is able to save us, might not. He might not save us. And we we are contemplating that possibility as well. But we want you to know one thing for certain. We don't know which of those options is going to take place. We understand we're going to the fiery furnace. One of two things might take place. But we want you to know one thing that's not going to happen, O King. We are not going to bow down to your image. We are not going to worship your God. You see, he didn't either know or understand about their faith. He didn't know or understand about the Ten Commandments. 
You see, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so they were saying, we are committed to keeping the first commandment. And the second commandment says, you shall not bow down to any image. And they were committed to keeping the second commandment as well. And so Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that sort of faith, that sort of commitment. And so he was in furious rage then. Now, you might note that in verse 17, there are different ways to translate that verse, and you may have a footnote at the bottom. But whatever that might be, however you translate it, the idea seems to be this. The idea seems to be that they were convinced of God's ability to save them, but they had no access to God's will to save them or not. They didn't know. They were sure of his ability. They were not sure of his particular will for their lives. You see, they knew from Scripture, they knew from experience that God is able, but does not always save his people from death. And they may well have been thinking about Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, the first three verses say, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Then when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And it's apparent that these men knew their scriptures. And they may well have been thinking about that verse and said, God has said he will save us even through the fire. We don't know what that will look like, but he has declared that he is the Savior. He will save us. And not a man to make idle threats. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he doubled down on his threat. He said, heat up the furnace seven times hotter than normal and get the biggest, strongest crack troops to tie these men up and to throw them into the fiery furnace. And that's exactly what happened. And in his haste, in his excess, in his rage, he lost some of his best troops because the fire was so hot and we don't know if it swelled up at that moment, but it it consumed the, the soldiers who were throwing them in. And here the men were thrown in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, clothed and bound, they were thrown in to the fiery furnace. Now, this could have been the end of the story. And it was the end of the story for many Jews at Nebuchadnezzar's hands. He had slaughtered many of them. He was not above that. And actually, in Jeremiah 29, 22, two of them are mentioned by name who were roasted in the fire by Nebuchadnezzar. So that was not unprecedented, and it wasn't certainly out of character for Nebuchadnezzar. This could have been the end of the story, and it was for many others. But in this case, there is a surprising reversal that takes place at verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar was watching in satisfaction as he had executed justice on these rebels, but then he was astonished and rose up, and then he was confused about numbers. And he wanted to verify his numbers. And he he yelled to his counselors, how many men? Didn't we throw three men into the fire? And they said, yes, of course. I don't know if he was wondering about if one of them had fallen in or if they grabbed another by mistake. But but he said, I'm seeing four men. 
There are four men in the fire. They are unbound. We threw three men in, bound. We now see, I now see four men. They are unbound. They're walking around in the flames. And we don't know what impressed him about the image of the fourth one. But he says the fourth one looks like a god. The fourth one has divine qualities about him. He looks like a son of the gods. He later calls him an angel, a messenger. Now, although although Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have known about Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 to 3, he correctly identified this personage. He identified this, this fourth, fourth being as God being present with his people in their affliction in the furnace. This divine figure in the form of a man entered into the place of death with his people and he brought them out of that place of death alive. Now, it is impossible for Christians not to find that story familiar. It's impossible for us not to recognize the, the anticipation here, the, the, the storyline here that is, that is anticipating a, another instance of this, of, of divine person in human form entering into the place of death and coming out of the place of death in order to save his people who also have to go into that place of death. This is Jesus. I'm not saying that that personage is Jesus. Jesus was born some 600 years later. But this personage here is anticipating, pointing to a shadow, an anticipation, a preparation for for the culmination of this story. God becoming man, entering into death, coming out of death, giving salvation to all who trust in him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar came to a recognition. He'd recognized something in chapter 2 about about Daniel's God, that he was the only God who could give interpretations like he gave. And now he recognizes something else about the God of these young men, and that is that he is the most high God. And when he calls to them, he says in verse 26, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. You see, he wasn't yet a believer in one God, But now he had changed his rankings, hadn't he? He had had his God in the form of a a golden image, and it was still gleaming there. He had just dedicated it, and what did he say? I'm changing the rankings here. You are the servants of the Most High God. And why does he call God the Most High God? Well, down in, in verse 29, the end of it, he says why. He says, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Look at the progression. Look at the progression here. If you go back to verse 16, he says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And then the the young man answer, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. And then Nebuchadnezzar again, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. He has recognized that God is unique, that he is the only one who can do that. Now, all of them observed 
that not only did they survive, but they were untouched by the fire. They didn't even smell like smoke. They were not even singed by the fire. And so he passed the law. He praised their God and he praised their integrity that they didn't bow to him. And he praised them for that integrity in following their God. And then he passed a blasphemy law to protect the worship of the God of the Jews. Therefore, I make a decree, verse 29, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. That seems to be one of his favorite penalties. We saw that last week, torn limb from limb, and the houses, their houses laid in ruins. He had just called all the nations... He had just pulled off Tower of Babel, part two. He had just called all the nations to worship his image. And now he is saying no one in all the nations should speak anything against this God because he's the God who is able to rescue in this way. And then to the dismay of the officials, verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, up to this point in Daniel, you will have noticed that things have turned out swimmingly well for these four men, haven't they? Um, So much so that they get an anonymous mention in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a brief mention, but it's an anonymous mention here in this this list of of exploits of faith. And we read it earlier in in verse 32 of Hebrews 11. And, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 34, what's it say? Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And up to this point in Hebrews chapter 11, it's all triumph. It's all triumph. Faith enables them to conquer, to escape, to have victory, to, to rise from the dead. And then out of nowhere, the writer to the Hebrews says this. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It seems like the author to the Hebrews should have stopped when he was ahead. He's talking about all these great victories of faith, quenched the the fires, the flames of the fires stopped, the, uh, shut the mouths of lions, obtained kingdoms, received their dead back, put foreign armies to flight. And then his climax is this, torture, mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, sawn in two, killed, sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreating. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, they all have one thing in common. And that's this. They trusted God no matter what. You see, they didn't know the outcome. And these three men didn't know the outcome either. But even so, they were not going to turn aside from the worship of the true God. 
They were not going to give in. They were not going to, to sacrifice. They were not going to bow down. They didn't know what was going to happen, and neither did those who are in the rest of this list of people of faith. They didn't know. And I have this suspicion. I have this suspicion in Hebrews that, that the author is going from the lesser to the greater. It's a great thing to conquer kingdoms. It's a great thing to shut the mouths of lions. But it's a greater thing to refuse to accept release when you're being tortured. It's a greater thing to endure mocking and being sawn in two for your faith. And so this is no anti-climax. This seems to me to be the climax of faith. And so far in Daniel, it's been all victory. Later on in Daniel, we'll see that it's not always that way. And if we read the scriptures, and if we look around in our own day, and in church history, history we'll find that, that there's two things here. One's God's job, and one is ours. One's God's calling, if you will, and that's his sovereign will, and we don't know what he's going to do. We don't, we don't know what he's going to do with us. But our calling is to remain faithful no matter what. The outcome's up to God. He calls us to be faithful. And, and that's certainly the message here, he'll be with us no matter what happens. We already sang it, but hear the words again of this hymn that's inspired by Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. And now this one. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for reposed, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what you have for each one of us. But we know that it will be good. And we know that you will be with us. And we pray that whatever it might be, that our faith would be fixed on Jesus.
the author and perfecter of our faith. Because we know he went into that place of death and he came out alive to bring all of us through who trust in him. We pray in his name.